open your Bibles to the book of Hosea, chapter 8, this morning. By my accounting, we will finish the book of Hosea. This morning, we have chapter 8, then chapters 9 and 10, and then we'll take one large piece, chapters 11, 12, and 13, and chapter 14 will be its own sermon, so we are just a few weeks away from finishing this. I pray... um, as your shepherd, as your pastor, that you have seen the redeeming love of God for sinners um, in this precious, precious book. It is a joy to have children. It's going to be a joy here in, um, next Sunday uh, to dedicate Melissa and Landon Cleaver to the Lord and just um, God working grace upon grace Wednesday in Landon surgery. Um, if you hadn't got a chance to talk to Jeff, Landon surgery went, um, I think, Jeff, don't you, just as smooth as it possibly could have. Um, they were able to get some reprieve from their feeding schedule, and so Landon wasn't forced to go too long without eating before he went into surgery, which helped tremendously. The surgeon was able to uh, do all that he needed to do, and praise God, he didn't have to go under general anesthesia to do it. Um, he didn't have to be intubated or anything like that. They worked with a combination of... Uh, just kind of twilight sleep and, and uh, localized uh, anesthetic. And so he was not put all the way under, which we praise God for that. That's so, it's troubling at any age, right? But uh, when you have a three-month-old, that is really uh, a tense time. And so praise God for the way he worked this past week and Landon's life as well. And so we're just just thrilled. I just feel <clears throat> full to, to overflowing this morning. Um, at the joys that God has given us in our children. And it's so good to see so many of you back. It's good to have the fair boss back from a summer full of ministry. It's good to have Davis home after an internship in China overseas this summer. And uh, good to have the blockers back from Houston. Just so many of you have been gone for a while. And it's a joy uh, to have you all home and be together as a family again this morning. Hosea chapter 8, out of respect for the reading of God's word, would you join me in standing? As we read these 14 verses. Hosea writes, Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they made themselves idols that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken into pieces. For they sow to the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations. Like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey. All alone, Ephraim has hired lovers. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish. Because the burden of this king of princes... Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. 
For the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Thank you. Be seated. Just indulge me one more time as we go to the throne of grace and asking for God's help. Father, I come before you now. I just ask, Father, one more time for grace to preach your precious word. Father, you're worthy. Father, we are guilty. We're guilty of idolatry in our hearts. Father, we have at many times and points in our life forsaken your covenant and rebelled against your law. Father, we have chosen wrongly and substituted things which cannot satisfy for the mere love and the mere joy and the mere glory of God. So, Father, bring us home today. Through your redeeming work and the gospel in Jesus Christ, would you bring us back to that point where we are once again made submissive and pliable and humble under your hand. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Father, I plead for your grace and your mercy to speak before your people. Guard my mouth, guard my tongues and my lips, Father, that I would speak only those things which you have spoken. In your word, by the aid of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the biggest disappointments in the pleasurable realm of human experience is the modern diet. We enjoy things, let's be honest, like real sugar, real grease, real butter, real pork, real beef. And yet, in our quest to live healthy, any number of substitutes have arisen. We now have stevia instead of sugar. We have uh, all number of butter substitutes instead of just the real thing. We have vegetable oils instead of grease in which to fry things, if you're from the South. And we have tofurkey instead of things like beef and pork and chicken. In fact, we were surprised to learn a couple of weeks ago in Denver when our family went for the allergist there and and they tested Evan on the spot and the allergist said, your son is allergic to beef, chicken and fish. And I said, I've never heard of anybody being allergic to beef, chicken, or fish. He said, well, it's not actually the meat itself, but it's an enzyme in the meat that he is reacting to. And so begins the journey for us to discover that of the biggest disappointments in the realm of human pleasure is the modern diet. While there may be real health benefits to making some of these lifestyle changes, we soon find out that as far as our mere pleasure in existence is concerned, they make a poor substitute for the real thing. At least as far as, again, our pleasure is concerned. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's true that it takes a long time to reprogram our minds and our sense of taste to accept a substitute. It takes a great effort at desensitization and breaking from old habits and old desires to reprogram for something else. Israel in Hosea chapter 8 finds themselves in a similar situation of poor substitutes. Substitutes that God never intended for them to get used to. 
They had tried a number of arenas in which to bring themselves greater pleasure by offering false substitutes. Instead of the worship of God, they began to worship the cult of the Baals. Instead of the law of God, they threw the law away in favor of human pleasure. Instead of divine blessing from God himself, they decided to pursue idols that never blessed anything. Instead of divine protection, they ran and made covenants and pacts with pagan kings like the king of Assyria. The reality of their substitutes were that they were not only unequal to God, but they were so much worse than anything else they could have imagined. They thought they were doing something that was great and something grand and something that would replace God, but in the end they found out it was not only incapable of replacing God, it actually brought bondage instead. They were trading a substitute of death for a substitute of life. And I want us to begin to see this morning the idea of poor substitutes as God laments what Israel has done and to even begin to mine out what exactly they were trading from this text that by the grace of God we might examine our own lives to find Christ sufficient and the idols of this world grossly insufficient. And so we begin by examining how in uh, these first few verses they begin by the trading of God. Look at the text with me, if you would, this morning in verse 1. Hosea issues what Calvin called a declaration of war. He says here, put the trumpet to your lips. Now the trumpet in Hosea's day was an instrument of, of vast significance. And used in this context, it was used as an instrument of war to rally the nation to war. They would stand with their shofar, their trumpet, and they would literally sound from community to community a trumpet blast, a trumpet cry that alerted them to the invading nations around them. If they were to cross the border, one community would sound to the next a rousing trumpet blast to arms. And Hosea says, essentially at the opening of this chapter, put the trumpet to your lips. God has declared war with you. God is coming in judgment against you, Israel, because of your poor substitutes. Because of the things that you have done to remove God and to replace them with something far inferior. Not only far inferior, but actually rebellious. Look at the rest of the verse 1, would you? He says this, imagine one of these prophets standing before you and saying, like an eagle, the enemy, literally the word in Hebrew is translated vulture, but in most English translations we get eagle. He says, like an eagle or a vulture, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. We've all seen what vultures do, and it's not pretty. Let me just help you refresh your memory, and get the context of what Hosea is saying here. Now, if you see a vulture, do do vultures typically attack living things? They don't, do they? They wait until that thing is dead. And then they come down and they begin to wreak havoc on the carcass of that dead animal. We've all seen it out here many times driving down the road and 
you see these vultures. In fact, I remember as a boy, my dad had an employee that uh, was driving his car and he thought, well, as I drive up fast enough, the vultures will leave the roadkill and they'll fly away. They did not. One tried and came right through his windshield. It was not a pleasant experience for him. He had to drive the rest of the way to Midland with that smell of a vulture in his car. And he says, listen, Israel, you are spiritually dead. You're a carcass. And now the vulture, the enemy, is about to come into the house of the Lord and do his destructive work in your life. So this is not just uh, formality, not just uh, your, your average Hebrew greeting to a letter. He is proclaiming judgment that is coming upon a nation that is spiritually dead because of their rebellion. But I want you to notice this morning the substitute, how they got there. And and this this is really, I think, the the linchpin for the entire sermon. Notice what they did at the end of verse 1. They have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. You see, we, brothers and sisters, would be tempted in our flesh to reverse the order of that. We would say the first thing that Israel did wrong was that they rebelled against the law of God. They didn't do something right. But you know, Hosea, under the inspiration of God, goes to something far deeper than that. The word transgress literally means to break away from or be disloyal. And he says here... Israel has been disloyal. They have detached themselves from the covenant of God. Now, rewind in history, if you would, with me, back to the covenants of Israel. The covenants that God made for those. And let's see if we can understand what Israel is doing by being disloyal and detaching themselves from the covenant of God. The God came to Adam and he made a covenant with Adam. And he says, Adam, listen, as long as you obey me, you can stay here and live. And Adam did not. And he disobeyed and he died. And we've all died since then. But that predates the history of Israel. We come forward to Noah. And again, God makes a gracious covenant with Noah. And by the way, brothers and sisters, I've been reading the beginning of Genesis again this week. Listen, don't make the mistake of thinking Noah earned his way into God's favor. Noah did not. Noah looked into the eyes of God and saw that God had grace upon him. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn the favor, he found it there. And so we have Noah and we find God making covenant with Noah. But even again, that predates the nation of Israel. So what covenants could it be that Israel broke away from? Well, we begin in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. God comes to a pagan man in a pagan nation and he says to that man, you're my man. Come out from the land of your fathers, come out from the land of idolatry and you will be my special people. Abraham had to do what to do that? What did Abraham do to earn that? Nothing. It was all of God's pleasure. It was all of God's divine initiative. And then we find as God actually cuts the covenant with him, Abraham is over here on the side asleep as God himself makes covenant with himself on behalf of Abraham. And again, Abraham does what? 
And yet what does God do? He makes the covenant for Abraham. He promises the price to be paid on his tab, on his account, when Abraham does break the covenant. And then God says, Abraham, I'm doing all this for you, but that's not enough. Abraham, here is what you're going to receive. You're going to receive a land. You're going to receive descendants more numerous than the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky. Abraham, I am going to pour out my divine blessing on you. Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth are going to find their blessing ultimately in Christ who came through Abraham's seed. And so God makes bountiful promises and blessings to Abraham in the establishment of his covenant to be his promised people. And what did Abraham do? Nothing. All that Abraham had to do was believe. To trust in the promises of a God who called him out of the land. By the way, when you begin to study Mesopotamian culture in Abraham's day, this must have been a bizarre thing for God to have called him. It was a strange place. One thing that we, we forget, this is just to show God's grace to Abraham in this covenant. Abraham came out of a culture that practiced child sacrifice. And now he's been called to a land where no longer is he required to offer sacrifice, but in the making of the covenant, God actually made the sacrifice for him. Oh, what's this? This is new. I don't have to kill a child to seal the covenant? No. And then you can imagine Abraham, as God calls him, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and take him up to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to kill him. Ah, yeah. Same deal. I should have known. You're no different than the gods of my Mesopotamian forefathers. But God says, no. No, Abraham, I'm, I'm different. Here's a ram to prove it. You don't have to do anything. I'll provide. God provides gracious covenant and gracious promises. And yet we find Israel. Read the text. They detached themselves from the covenant. We might expect God to say, they broke the law first. No, the first thing they did was detach themselves from the promises of God. They lacked faith. God had promised bountiful blessings and they detached themselves from that. Brothers and sisters, the reason that we ever substitute God with anything else is because we have more faith at that moment that something else can bring better pleasure, better blessing than what God has already said He would bring. And essentially, we with Israel raise our fist to God and say, God, you don't know what is best. You are incapable of giving what is best. I'll replace you. I, it makes no sense. 
to walk away from the covenant that God made with them of blessing and promise. But then go on, look at the second part of verse, or the last phrase here in verse 1. And they rebelled against my law. Okay, so now we move on to the second major covenant in Israel's history, the Mosaic Covenant, where God gives Moses the law and he gives essentially this formula. So in the Mosaic Covenant, God is saying, okay, there's two parts involved here. If you obey, then I will bless. If you keep the commandments, I will bless you. And what did Israel commit to do to the Mosaic Covenant? All that you have spoken, Exodus 19, all that you have spoken, we will do. And they didn't. And so now, not only have they detached themselves from the covenant of grace that was given to Abraham and the promise of blessing, now they detach themselves from the act of obedience to the Mosaic command, to the Mosaic covenant. Israel rebelled against God. They broke covenant because they saw more promise in substitutes than they did in God. They could not see this Yahweh. He had never uh, come down in the flesh and talked with them, but they could see the idols, couldn't they? They could touch the granite. They could, they could handle the wood. Maybe they even got splinters from the wood. This God's alive. And they rebel because they lacked faith in the covenant promises of God, faith in God as He promised them and called them to obedience. Brothers and sisters, this morning, their sin and their day, our sin and our day, it's not a matter of loss of faith. Now, I've often heard that said, so when we sin, we sin because of lack of faith. That's not true. We have faith but we have it in the wrong place. That's the problem. That's the, that's the real catch. It's not that we don't have faith. We have faith more in the substitute than we do in God when we sin. But what began as a matter of faith in verse 1 quickly turns to a matter of worship in verse 6. Look there. For from Israel is even this, God says, a craftsman made it. So it cannot be God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken into pieces. And God goes on to talk about their idolatry and this, this thing that they made, this cow that they made to worship instead of worshiping God. And he points out the absolute stupidity of what they've done. You've got a mortal man who has a finite number of days that creates something that he goes out, cuts the tree down, whittles the, the bark off, shaves it down, fashions it into what he wants it to be, and then says, this is God. How foolish. Hosea is mocking them. This is, this is absolute stupidity. A craftsman made it so that it cannot be God. Dr. William Barrick said this, Long before the exodus from Egypt, God had revealed to Moses that the nation's experience at Mount Sinai would be primarily an exercise in worship. Okay, so think with me. The Mosaic command, the giving of the law, 
Barak says it was always intended to be about worship. God says, certainly I will be with you and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain, Exodus 3.12. Long before the people ever came out, God tells Moses this. And so Israel entered into the Mosaic Covenant during, through, and for the purpose of worship. And now we find them, because of their lapse of faith, their, their lapse of faith in God, we should say, and more in idols, now we come to the point they've got a worship issue. They've broken the very reason and the very purpose God brought them up out of Egypt. Exodus 3. They're going to make something, and then they're going to worship it. And Hosea said, that's just a stupidity. To think that you can make something and then call it God. They're breaking away from the worship of Yahweh. They are leaving His worship. So, we read in verse 1 that the vulture is coming against them. It's because the blessings and the promises of divine protection and blessing have been lifted. And it is lifted at the point that the worship ceased. Brothers and sisters, as long as we remain in the worship of God, we need not fear apostasy. When God is the object of our trust, when God is the object of our blessing, when we realize that everything is about Him and from Him, And for Him, we will not fall away. But Israel forgot. The law of God is rebelled against when the worship and trust of God ceases. Remember that. Go back in your life and find a point where you had strayed from the Lord. A point in your life when you were not uh, walking obediently, faith-filled with the Lord. And you know what? You'll find that that all started when the worship of God ceased. Worship of God yields love for God or uh, spontaneous with that and then produces obedience to God. I think that's what they're finding out here. Verses 2 and 3 comment on this. They cry out to me, listen to the insanity of their cry. My God, we of Israel know you. I'm sure you do after you find out the vulture's on his way. We know you. We have academic, intellectual pursuit of you. And yet God says Israel has rejected the good. They knew, but they didn't know. You know, in the Greek, there are the different words for knowledge. There's gnosko knowledge, which means an intellectual pursuit to give someone data or facts. I know this. And then there is oida knowledge, which is to experience that reality. To know it by a personal test. And God says what they're crying out here is, we know you, we have a head knowledge about who you are, your name. We know who you are, you're Yahweh. So God, don't send the vulture. We do, we know, we know. It's interesting to know. that archaeologists who have gone to 
the northern part of Israel and unearthed cities. And you understand how cities are built. Terry's been there many times. He knows this. But, but cities are built one on top of the other in the, in the ancient Middle East. And when one city kind of died off, they just covered it over and started another one. And so these, these archaeologists, these scientists go and they can dig and they'll find city after city after city buried in these tells or hills. And when archaeologists have unearthed the cities of Israel in Hosea's day, they find inscriptions and idols to the Baal cult all over the place, but they do not find even written the name of Yahweh. They've not unearthed finds, for lack of a better term, signs from people's houses that says, we believe in Yahweh. But they have found their idols. And they have found the names of idols. And so, how hypocritical it proves out, we see God's point in verse 2. How dare you cry, we know you, you don't acknowledge me at all. I'm absent from your culture. I'm absent from your life. And because of that, I will reject. The word rejected literally comes from the word to stink. God says, you stink. You're like a decaying carcass. Janak, I reject you because you stink. That's God's statement to Israel. That's Israel's statement to God. God, we think you stink. God, we're going to leave this covenant. Look, it's Israel who rejected the good. They rejected the covenant blessings and promises of God because they thought they were inferior. It's junk. What did they do? Verse 4, they set up kings, but not by me. They appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf of Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Do we realize this as we read this at the end of the northern kingdom, at the end of Israel's history for this point in time, as they are coming up on their very last king, after king, after king, after king has been assassinated, and now they're about to go into Assyrian captivity with no king, do we realize this, that going all the way back to Samuel, God never wanted Israel to have a king in the first place. That was never His plan. 1 Samuel 8, 7, the people had been pleading with Samuel, give us a king, give us a king. Everybody else around us, they got kings. We don't have a king. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people. In regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The reality is that the heart of the nation for many centuries had been steeped in rejecting God. And now in Israel's history, 
Not only have they had their own kings and that didn't work out so well, but now they're running to foreign kings and God says, look, I allowed them to have kings. I gave them Saul and then I gave them David and then I gave them Solomon. And then after that, it just went all chaos with the divided kingdom. God says, I, I, I've given them their kings. But now, in spite of my grace, now they're going to go and they're going to get kings that I don't know. They're going to get foreign kings that I didn't ever appoint. He says, I don't know who they are. They're going to appoint princes apart from me. And they're going to take their silver and their gold, the most precious things they had, and they're going to make idols for themselves so that they might be cut off. God had warned in 1 Samuel about the great problems they would face because of having earthly kings, and now they're experiencing that full on. The Assyrian king would come and he would promise them that he would take care of them, that he would protect them. And it's interesting to note how he began to get into them. They made a covenant. He began to lay heavy, heavy taxes on them. And he began to crush them economically. And he began to to take possession little by little of the land of Israel. Did these Assyrian kings. Until finally one day they said, "Uh, enough of the half measures, let's get the whole thing and in come the armies. And they're gone. They sold their soul to this Assyrian king. What's the problem? Well, it it was a rejection of God's authority. Listen to this. The last king that God ever appointed in Israel was Zechariah. He was assassinated at the end of Jehu's dynasty. Going back into history, Jehu's dynasty had been commanded by God, but none of these other dynasties. And since that time, it was just one assassination after another. People didn't consult God. They didn't seek God. They just decided they'd kill who was ever in power, and they would take over. It was not only a rejection of his authority, it was a rejection of his worship, as we've already said, and it took form in the place of calf worship. Parents, can I give us a frightening, frightening bit of history? Do you know where calf worship originated? Egypt. How many generations had Israel been out of Egypt? Well, a lot. A long time. These kids that are building these idols that look like calves now should not have known anything about that. That should have died off a long time ago. But you know what that tells me? The generations preceding... They came out of Egypt and they had the golden calf there at the bottom of the mountain and God crushes the calf and, and all of that account. But their heart never changed. The calf stayed in the heart of generation after generation after generation. Parents, we've got to be careful to give to our children the pure word of God, to, to instill in them a love for God and and not to sell them the idols of our own heart. We have idols. 
we must be careful and give all diligence not to pass idolatry on. But to ground our children in a love for God. Changed by the gospel. It's amazing that this calf cult has been with them ever since they came out of Egypt. It's confounding. God literally says in verse 5, your calf stinks. I'm going to burn it. I'm going to tear it down. And then he asked this frightening question, how long will they be incapable of innocence? How long will it be until their hearts are purified? Oh, how this must have just burdened and broken Hosea's heart. But the inference here is that there's no end in sight of their idolatry. There's no end in sight of their sin. And so, God is saying, how long? I don't even know. They can't be innocent. Brothers and sisters, we will never be innocent apart from Christ. We will never be innocent unless we run back to the promises of God's redemption and we cleave to those and we tie every hope that we have to those. Not our moralism, not our personal reform, not our discipline, not our good behavior, not our external conformity, but we anchor our souls to the hope that we have in the redeeming promises of God. Then and only then are we capable of innocence. But Israel wasn't there. They were continuing to detach themselves from the promises of God. There's an interlude of judgment quickly, verses 7. They're going to sow the wind. They're going to get back the whirlwind. In other words, if I could paraphrase it for West Texas, they're going to have an average 20 to 30 mile an hour wind day. But they're going to get one of those 80 mile an hour wind days back. They're going to uh, plant their crops. And we can relate to this in our day that the crops are not going to have any fruit on. There'll be no grain on the heads. They're just driving the other day through the panhandle and looking at the corn crops. The stalks are up, but there's no corn because of the drought. And God says, the plant's going to come up. There's not going to be anything to eat off of it. And then the chance that there is the Assyrians are going to come in and take it all. How's that for all your hard work, Israel? You're going to plant, you're going to work, and you're never going to realize. They've gone into Assyria like a donkey all alone. They've hired the poor substitute of spiritual adultery and physical adultery in verse 9. A poor substitute. And surely at this point, Hosea, godly man, has to be thinking about the last significant time in Israel's history that they went looking for foreign aid in place of God's aid. It occurred in 1 Samuel chapter 21, perhaps one of the best known cases of this in Israel's history, though not the only two for sure. You remember David. David was running from Saul. And instead of trusting God and just resting in God, 
instead of believing the promises of God that he would indeed be the next king, David goes to his enemies. And he goes to the king of Gath, to Achish. And he says, hide me. Saul is coming to get me. Now, wait a minute, David, aren't you going to be the next king? Aren't you my next enemy? I didn't think about that. And so what does David begin to do? He begins to drool down his beard. He begins to act like a deranged mental patient so that Achish would let him go. Brothers and sisters, to substitute anything for God's promises and God's protection will always cause us to play the part of the fool. It happened to David, now it's happening to Israel. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now we'll gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Remember we talked about this last week, one of the immediate results of Israel's punishment was this, that God began to say, your birth rate declined from here. And what was the original promise given? You will multiply. But now the, the, we're going to realize the reversal of that promise. You, you've got substitutes, fine. You can have your substitute, but guess what? It's not going to produce. Whether that's because of the immoral activity with the with the immoral people engaged in the Baal cult, the prostitutes in the temple, or whether it was just that the children began to die off, one thing is clear. They begin to feel that burden. That burden of not multiplying. Ephraim multiplied altars of sin. They became altars of sinning for him. Listen to what God says in verse 12. I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law. Oh, I told him. I told him. Over and over and over again, I told them that they regarded it as a strange thing. Brothers and sisters, may the idols of our heart never take us to that place where we read the Word of God and we say, that's weird. May we be so biblical, may we be so infused with what God has spoken that we look at everything else and say, no, that's weird. But they had so taken in the bad substitutes that they looked at God and said, you're strange. Remember, the law of God is a reflection of the character of God, and so when you make a slur on the law of God, you're actually slurring God. Strange. And as for my sacrificial gifts, the gifts that He gave to foreshadow their ultimate blessing in Christ, those things that He had given to roll back sin, they take it and they eat it. It's not to be eaten. It's not light. It's not trivial. The priest could, but not the people. But the people are now doing this. And the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt, not the land of Egypt, but to the bondage like Egypt. Verse 14 ends it. For Israel has forgotten his maker. Here's the substitute. And they built palaces. They forgot God. Who needs him? 
we've got palaces. We're, we're going to build. That's the answer, right? Material blessing, something we can touch and see and feel and something that, that everybody in the world is going to know us by. We'll build palaces. Surely that's what God wants. Judah has multiplied fortified cities. Their cousins to the south had built massive cities with those legendary massive walls. And God says, that's a poor substitute. And here's what I do to poor substitutes. I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. And we may look at that and we may say, wow, God really hates Israel. You know what I do? I look at it and I say, wow, God really loves Israel. He was going to take away the things that their idolatrous heart was anchored to so that in the end they would come home. Remember, God says to Hosea's children, to Hosea, name your children, lo and me. Uh, you're not my people. I don't, I don't love you anymore. At least not in the sense of loving you by blessing you. Did God still love Israel? Oh, He certainly did, but He loved them in a different way. He loved them with chastisement. Just like we love our children sometimes with gifts, sometimes we love them with discipline. God loves Israel here in verse 14. It's judgment to be sure, but it's judgment for the sake of ultimate redemption and love. If you go back to Genesis and you read the account at the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel did the same thing. You have Noah and his family. They come off the ark. They're off the ark for a few generations. The generations get together and they say, you know what we need to do? We all got one language. We've got one common goal. We're going to build a city. And we're going to make the tower of this city ascend up into the heavens. In other words, we're going up to where God is and we're going to make it happen. And God looks down and He says, in his, within this inter-Trinitarian conversation, He says to Himself, because they're united and because they have one language, there is nothing that they cannot do if they set their mind to it. And God, at that point, could have said, that's it, I'm done, to humanity. But you know what he does? So he doesn't have to destroy them. He confuses the languages so that they can't get along and they disperse. That's grace. Was it judgment? Absolutely. But it was judgment combined with grace so that in the end, he could still save. He didn't just eliminate them. He does that to Israel here. He doesn't kill them. He does destroy their palaces. And he does destroy their fortified cities so that they undergo a season of love through discipline that in the end they would come home by love through redemption. But their poor substitutes could never do that. And so in the end, God removes the poor substitutes. Our problem boils down like this. We lack faith in the promises of God. And we have more faith in the promises of poor substitutes. Secondly, we cease to live our lives in worship 
that is rooted in that faith. Faith in the promises of God. And when that happens, we go after any and every idol that comes along. May God help us to guard our hearts. May God help us to find Him and His promises sufficient. May our worship be rooted in that faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us that You have given us Your Word. Thank You, Father, for the nation of Israel that You have given for our example and our admonition. Father, we are guilty of seeking to replace You and Your promises with poor substitutes that cannot satisfy. And so God, may we run back to You, giving thanks for the seasons of purification in our life where You destroy that which is taking us away from You. God, I pray that Your Spirit right now would begin a crushing work of idols in our hearts. And may we find Christ precious, may we find Him sufficient, may we find Him sweet, and may our lives be absolutely obsessed and fixated with Him as our all in all. Thank You for Your tough love. Thank You that You bring about the genuine and real article after that. Because God, we trust one thing, that You are redeeming and faithful God. We love You. Cause us to love you more as you purify us more. In the name of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus, for the fame and the glory of his name, we ask these things.